Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. We're in chapter 4, and we're just going to look at the last um, five verses of chapter 4 tonight uh, in, in our Bible study. So if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's just read that because it's not a huge portion of Scripture. It won't take up too much time of our study. So uh, let's read from chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation or lifestyle, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting or thy progress or advancement may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The New Testament church of Ephesus was probably the most, if not the most, one of the most noteworthy churches of Paul's time. It was started by the Apostle Paul himself in Acts chapter 19. He spent more time in that city than in any other place that we know of recorded in Scripture. He tells us that he was there for three years. It's the first church and the only church that we know of in the New Testament that outgrew the ability to meet in homes and they rented a building. It's the first instance where the church was large enough to house a building. And so there was many people that were affected by the church, many members of that church. And when Paul left Ephesus, he gave a a stern and sure warning to the elders that were left behind. And he said, after my departure... Grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And he foresaw that after he left, things would veer off course to the left and to the right. And sure enough, that's what happened. It wasn't as though they were shipwrecked or derailed completely or completely thrown off course, but things were amiss to the point of Paul sending his closest assistant, Timothy, to that region to set things right again in the church. And so Paul sends this young man, Timothy, to the city of Ephesus to set things right in the church. And now he writes this letter to him to both instruct him as to what to do there in correcting these things, and also to encourage him because he knew that it wouldn't be an easy task that he was to, to, to undertake while going into that place under those conditions, those circumstances. And so the first half of the epistle, he writes to him just about some very practical things. Make sure that the doctrine is set right, Timothy, that they teach no other doctrine. 
that the deeds, the things that the church is given to, that those things be in order, that the priorities be right, that prayer, intercession, order is established and upheld there in the church. And then concerning the leadership, he talks about elders and deacons and setting those things right and having the right type of people in those positions. And he deals with practical things in the first half and then caps it off by talking about the purpose of the church itself. That the church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. But at this point, we tip the scales a little bit and Paul moves from the practical side of his instruction to more the personal side. He begins to talk to Timothy at this point about people, about relationships within the church. And he begins in the most practical place possible, and that is talking to Timothy about those that will be your critics. He begins by saying, verse 12, let no man despise thy youth. The word despise means to look down upon. The word de is, you know, D-E there, that suffix is to, you know, to to cast down. And then spies is look at, you know, like the word spy. And so it's to look down upon. Don't let anyone look down upon or abhor or excuse away the authority that you have on the account of the fact that you are young. Now, Timothy was not young in the sense that we would think of as a teenager. He, he probably had a full beard. He probably, at this point in his life, was somewhere between the ages of 35 and 45 years old, which, for a minister, for someone that was given that amount of authority and that amount of commissioning, it was considered to be a young age to have that kind of uh, place within the church. And certainly, when you consider the things that Timothy was being sent to Ephesus to do, you know that there would be resistance. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that is kind of set in its ways or that does things a certain way. And if a young pastor comes into town and wants to make changes and bring reforms and bring things back, it can be a very ugly situation sometimes. And Paul knew that Timothy's greatest vulnerability when it came to the things that he was sent there to do would be his age. The fact that he was young. And that there would be people there in the church that had thinner tops and grayer beards that would be looking down upon Timothy's supposed or apparent immaturity and seeking to discredit him based upon the fact that he was not as mature or have enough life experience, and so they would seek to derail his agenda, the thing that he was sent there to do, simply because of his youth. For you and I, we have critics too. We, unlike Timothy, are not often sent to churches to reform them and set things right, but we certainly do have people that want to despise our message or our Christianity in some regard or another. When a person gets saved, their whole life is radically transformed. They go from darkness to light. They pass from death to life. All things are made new. Their whole life turns upside down. The word of God begins to make sense. Life begins to make sense. Death begins to make sense. 
Creation begins to make sense. Church goes from being a drag to being fun. You want to go. It's not that you have to go. You want to go. Many times you feel, I need to go. And and, and having that light and that life and that renewal internally, often you want to give it away to others. And so you go to your unsaved family members or to the people that were or are or were or soon will not be your friends, you know, because of what's happening in your life, and you seek to give to them what God is giving to you. And immediately their normal inclination is to despise or to excuse away or in some way to look down upon or not, you know, listen to what you're saying. And so they'll despise it. And and oftentimes it's not because we're young. It can be because you're young if you're talking to your parents. They, They may despise your youth. But other times they might despise not your youth, but the fact that they knew you when you were a youth. And they'll look at you and they'll say, you, you, Mr. Kegstand, you are going to talk to me about the things of God? You know, you, the one who could or did or, and, and they, they bring up everything they can to try to excuse away the message that we're seeking to bring to them about what God has done in our lives and what he's willing and wanting to do in their lives. And so he seek, they seek to despise us. They seek to look down upon us. And Timothy was facing that in Ephesus. And Paul says, don't let it happen. And, and, and the question will be, well, how do you keep people from despising, whether it be the youth of Timothy or the history of you and I? How do we keep that from happening? And the answer is very simple. Paul gives it. He says, don't give them any reason to be able to. The way that you keep someone from despising your message or your past or whatever it is that they're trying to use to excuse away your message, he says that the way that you combat that is that you don't give them any reason to be able to. He says, let no man despise thy youth. He says, but instead, be thou an example of the believer. The word example there, it means this. It means a stamp a form, a mold, a model, a pattern, or a print. To be a mold or a model or a stamp or a pattern of what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. The King James uses two words in the English language for this one word example. Some places it uses the word example like it does here. But in other places, the same exact word is translated N sample, Old English. It's a, that's what it is in the English. It's N sample. Be an N sample. And, and I love that word because that word breaks down the definition of what an example is. It means to be a sample. That you and I are to be a sample of the believer. Now, we used to live over in Brewster. And one of our favorite things to do, being a young family that didn't have much entertainment budget was to go to Stu Leonard's. Have you ever been to Stu Leonard's? There's one over there. There's one down in Yonkers. And and the, the, the reason why we liked going to Stu Leonard's, that supermarket, was because every 10 feet, there's a sample station. 
It started with the desserts and the coffee, and there was always samples of those things, and then it moved into the cheeses and, you know, the bagel chips, and then there was always a meat product, and and then you got to the orange juice, freshly squeezed, and there was no supervision. You could tap your own, and so we'd hand it out to all the kids in a little cone cup, and during the holidays, you could get eggnog, and you would just go from station to station, and you could have a meal on Stu Leonard's because of the samples, you see. But the purpose of the samples at Stu Leonard's was to give you a taste in order to entice you to want more. That's what a sample is. A sample is a taste with the intent to entice. That's a sample. And Paul is saying to Timothy that this is what you're to be. This is how you will stop the mouths of your critics and Get an audience, gain an audience with those that you're sharing with is that if you are a sample of the believer, if your life carries on the flavor of Jesus Christ to a degree that when people are in your presence, they say, I taste a little bit of something that I want more of. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy is that he is supposed to be, that he is supposed to do to stop the critics Be a sample, an example of the believer. And then he gives him six areas of life where he's to be a sample or an example of the believers. He says, first of all, in word. Very simply, in the things that you say and the way that you say them. That both of those things make a difference as far as our example of Jesus Christ. The things that come out of our mouth and the way they come out of our mouth. That we're to be an example of Jesus Christ. Then he says, your conversation. Which that that word has kind of evolved in the English language from the time 1611 when it was recorded in King Jimmy, you know. And the word is literally your lifestyle. The way that you behave or the way that you conduct yourself, what you give yourself to, your behavior, that you're to be an example of Jesus Christ in the way that you behave and in your lifestyle, the lifestyle choices that you make, that people should around you sense that you're not of this world. People have a tendency to profile, don't they? I remember one time... Uh, and, and maybe some of you have done this to me, but I were, I, when we first got married, Georgia and I worked uh, at a market research firm. It was the absolute worst job I've ever, no, it was the second worst job I've ever had uh, in my life working there. And I remember that there was one woman that came up to me one day, and she probably didn't come up to me, it was probably in a conversation, but she told me this. She said, I know every article of clothing you own. And, 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 you know, I'm not, you, you, you know this, I am not a fashion guy. I buy clothes once a year at the Salvation Army in Rochester when we go there for the holidays because it's like the size of a Walmart and you could find new clothes for 2 or $3. It's unbelievable. And, and, and so, you know, I, I've never been into that, into clothes style looking good. And she came and she said, I know every single article of clothing you own. And, and, she, and then she named them off to me. And I was like, wow, you're pretty good, you know. But that's what people do. People profile. They try to look at us, and then they put us in, in, in something. They, they figure out what we're about or what we're into or the type of person that we are, and then they classify, they, they label us, they put us there. They've got to have a place for us. And the idea behind this lifestyle, being an example of the believer, is that no one should ever be able to put you in a profile 
with any other thing that attaches itself to this world. Because they couldn't do that to Jesus. They couldn't put Jesus into, they tried to make him a politician, but it didn't work. It didn't fit. It wasn't right. They tried to make him a glutton, and it didn't work. It wasn't right. They tried to make him a religious zealot, and they couldn't because he wasn't of this world. And that's the idea, is that our our lifestyle is to be so outside of this world that no one can look at us and say, yeah, I know what you're about. And so we're to be an example in our lifestyle. And then he says, in charity. And the word charity in the Greek is the word agape. It's where we get the word love. And it's a specific type of love. It's unconditional love. And so he's telling us that our demeanor towards people should be unconditional love, appreciation, and we should value them. That our, you know, sense or the way that we deal with people should be in love, that we should love them, be an example of Jesus and the love of God, unconditionally loving people. And then he says, in spirit. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, that word is not there in your text. And so here here is your moment. You have permission. Put a little arrow and write the word spirit in there. The word pneuma, spirit, is there in the Greek language. It was omitted by the NIV translator. So if you are NIV positive, let me help you. Write it in the margin, the word spirit there. And the word spirit means your uh, unspoken expression. And, and, and we understand that. You know what it's like when someone is speaking without words, right? We, we do this with our kids all the time. You know, they'll get up in the morning and I'll, sometimes I'll joke around with them because they have the morning face and the morning hair and the morning clothes and the morning breath, you know. And, and, and I'll joke around with them. They'll get out of bed and I'll say, hey, how you doing today? And I'll say, hey, are you saved? And they'll say, yeah, Dad, we're saying. I say, well, tell your face, you know. <laughs> and my wife says that to me, you know. So it all, it all comes back around, you know. But the idea here is that when we are living life, when we're walking into the office on Monday morning or when we're in a situation that maybe we don't want to be in or in a, in a place or around someone that maybe we don't like, that, that our unspoken expression is a reflection of the spirit of Christ that's in us. Is that we're an example of the believer in what we're saying when we're not speaking. And so he says, in spirit... And then he says, in faith. The word faith means your persuasion and your conviction. That you're an example of Jesus Christ in what you are persuaded of and concerning your conviction of things, specifically things eternal, the things of God. That you are an example in faith. And then finally, in purity. And the word purity means moral cleanness. That you're morally clean in what you do, in what you say, in who you are, and what you give yourself to, that you are a morally clean person. And so he gives these six areas where we are to be a stamp or a sample of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, how are you doing? (laughs) How am I doing? Let me turn the mirror right on myself. When we consider what Paul is saying to us and what the Bible, what God is laying before us and that we're to be an example of Christ in these things, how are we really doing? 
Because if I'm honest with myself, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have to conclude that these things, and to be an example of Christ in these things specifically, is in stark contradiction to our nature. That naturally, I am the opposite of these things. I am not an example of Christ in these areas or in any area naturally. And so I have to conclude I'm not doing too good. And I believe that that's the normal conclusion. Anybody who says otherwise is either really healthy spiritually or they're lying to themselves. And so what gives here? Because here's why it matters. Because nowhere in the Bible does God ever tell us to pretend to be something we're not. The definition of religion, essentially, is pretend to be something you're not. And, and the Bible, does. I think that's the hardest thing to do in all of the world, is to pretend to be something you're not. Not for a moment. You could, anybody can do that for a moment. But to 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, to try to pretend to be something you're not is an extremely heavy burden to place upon a person. And so for me to look at Jesus, and then to hear this exhortation, And then to try to stir up the motivation inside to try to do this, for me, that's the most grueling, arduous, and impossible thing that ever could be asked of a person. So if this is what I'm to do, and I recognize that it's the opposite of what I am, and I'm not called to pretend, then how does a believer become an example of a believer? How does it happen? And so Paul, in the four verses following, gives to us four ways. There are four practical things that Paul tells Timothy to do that will make him an example, a sample of Jesus Christ in these four areas. The first one he gives to us there in verse 13. The first, if you're taking notes, is to immerse yourself in the word. If you want to be an example of the believer and not be pretending, but actually have it be a part of who you are, the first necessity is that you be a person who immerses yourself in the word of God. Notice what he says there in verse 13. He says, till I come, give attendance. Now, we all understand that word attendance. Do you remember your school days? And you had to be there by 735 you know, depending on what grade you were in or what the rules were for that school. And if you were there before 7.35 and they called your name and you said, present, then the person taking attendance would mark that you were there. And there was always those people, I don't know if you had them in, in your school, but I always had those people that were striving for the perfect attendance record. They wanted the end of the year to come. And they wanted to be recognized that they never missed a single day of school. And so they, they were there every day, no matter what. And then they would get that beautiful badge that I never attained, you know. But that's what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying, give attendance. In other words, make it a priority to be present at the time when you are to do the following. And here's what it is. Here's what we're to be attendant or present to do. He says, Give attendance to, first of all, reading. To reading. And he's not talking about Agatha Christie. Or, you know, Dan Brown or whoever else. No, no, he's talking about reading scripture. He's talking about reading the Bible. 
He's not talking about Bible study necessarily of, you know, going through and picking it apart. He's just simply talking about reading. When's the last time, or let me ask you, how are you doing in this category of just reading the scripture? When's the last time you read the Bible in a year? You got one of those one-year Bible plans and and you just decided, you know, I'm going to give myself to reading and I'm going to read the Bible right through. Or even just a book, and you decided, you know, I'm going to take one of the Gospels, and I'm just going to read it. I'm going to go through it and and just read it every day, not, you know, a chapter today and then a chapter next month, and, you know, I'll get through it by 2016 or something. But, But, you know, just reading the Bible. He says, Timothy, give attendance to reading. Make it a priority. Make a commitment that you're going to read the Scripture. And just, did you know that you can read the whole Bible in 72 hours? At a normal pace, I'm not talking speed reading or the auctioneer type of thing, you know, you know. no, but just, just reading. You can read the Bible in 72 hours. Can we set aside 72 hours in a year to read the Bible? To just read it. It's possible. It's entirely possible. And it's what Paul's telling Timothy to do. Just read the Bible. Then he says, give yourself, give attendance to reading, but then he says also to exhortation. The word exhortation, is translated exhortation in the Greek, is the Greek word paraklesis. It's fun to say. That's the only reason I said it. You don't have to memorize it. There's not going to be a text. But here's what it means. It means to come alongside. That's what paraklesis. The comforter that Jesus said would come is called the paraklete, the one who comes alongside to help. So what he's saying here is not just are we to read the word of God, but we're also to come alongside of it. And that's important to understand. That that it isn't just reading the Bible that's going to help us. It's when we read the Bible, but at the same time we read it, we come alongside of the Bible or we bring our life alongside of what it is with the intent to apply it and to work it into who we are. So it's not just the reading aspect, but it's reading with the intent of applying it and being changed by it. It's paraclete, to come alongside of it, that our life and the word of God are tied together and that they're working in conjunction to do something within us. That's what that means, exhortation. So give yourself to reading the word of God, to coming alongside of the word of God with your life so that it can work in you. And then he says also then to doctrine. And doctrine simply means teaching. So that means be constantly exposing yourself to the teaching of the word of God. To be in church when the Bible is being taught, line upon line, precept upon precept. To make it a priority to be attendant, to be present when those times of gathering are happening. Make it a priority to be in a home group, to be once a week or once bi-weekly or as often as you can with a smaller group of people that are opening up the scriptures together, that are exhorting one another, that are picking apart doctrine and and, and wrestling it through and applying it and discussing it and, and, and laying it over and over again upon the life. To turn on the Christian radio station when you're in the car and to let the teaching of the word of God be washing over you even while you're driving from point A to point B. 
to turn off talk radio, to turn off the music and put a teaching tape or a teaching CD and to just continually be giving yourself to teaching so that the Word of God can do its work upon your life. He says, do these things, Timothy. Well, you say, well, why? Well, why do we read? Why do we come alongside the Word? Why do we study the Bible and give ourselves to teaching? What's the reason that we would do those things? Here's why. First of all, because when you do you find out what a believer looks like, right? If we're to be an example of the believer, then we better know what one is. And when we read the word of God, we understand what a Christian looks like. What was Jesus like? Who is God? And then it begins to give us an idea of the life that we've been called into. That's number one. That's less important. Number two is infinitely important. And here it is. Is that the word of God has power contained in it to bring forth those attributes within our life. That the word contains the power to not just show us what a believer looks like, but also to make us into the image of what we're reading about. The word of God is living and powerful, says the Hebrew writer, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 9 and 10, the prophet says that my word, that as the rain comes down from heaven and the snow, and it doesn't return, but it waters the earth, that it may bring forth and bud and give bread to the eater and seed to the sower. He says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it will not return to me void, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So the word of God contains the power to produce in our life the thing that it says. And so we're to give ourselves to it. You say, well, how much can I possibly give myself to the word of God? How much can I possibly take in? How much reading and doctrine and studies and exhortation can I endure? Well, what did Paul say to Timothy? Notice at the beginning of the verse, he said, until I come. Do you know when Paul came? Never. (laughs) He never came. So uh, if we're, hey, you take it. Until Jesus comes. That's how long. And it's the first way that we become an example of the believer is when we immerse ourselves in the word of God. The second thing that Paul writes to Timothy in verse 14, the second way that we become an example is to neglect not the gift. Notice in verse 14, he says to Timothy, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given to thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul was referring to as it specifically relates to Timothy. Because he doesn't tell us. We don't know if he's talking about a spiritual gift, you know, that Timothy had or the function of the ministry that was prophesied. We don't know what that is as it relates to Timothy. But what we do know is what it means for you and I. What does it mean for you and I? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the last word that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he ascended to heaven was this. He says this to his disciples, to you and I. He says, you shall receive power 
after that, the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, you shall receive power. The word is dunamos. It means dynamite. That you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And what's that power for? What is that power to do? He says, you shall be witnesses unto me. He does not say that you will go witnessing. There's a difference. See, to go witnessing means that, uh, okay, I'm going to have power to share Jesus with someone or to ask them if they are secure in their eternal standing with God. That's what it means to go witnessing. That's not what it says. It says you'll receive power to be witnesses. What is a witness? It's a living testimony. It's an example. He's essentially saying that you're going to receive power to be an example of me. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, wherever you are. That when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be empowered supernaturally to be an example or a sample or a witness of me wherever you are. How does that work? If I were to go home on any given day in Georgia were to send me a text message on my way home and say, Nick, we're having unexpected guests and I need to run out right now and get some groceries, but here's what I need you to do when you get home. I need you to, first of all, take the clothes that are in the washer and dry them. And then I need you to make some coffee, get some coffee going, you know, and and then I need you to... uh, you know, make the smoothie for the kids, you know, the vitamin smoothie that they, they have for dinner each night. And I need you to do those things when you get home. Now, here's, here's, what, here's what happens is I go like this. I go, oh, no. I don't know how to do those things because I don't do those things, you know. I do make the coffee. That's biblical. <laughs> Hebrews, you know. <laughs> But here's what would happen is I would go home. And so I'd go home and the first thing I would do is I would take the clothes out of the washer and I would begin to wave them around. Come on now, dry, dry, dry. You know, and so, but, but now I, I also have to make coffee and the smoothie and I only have an hour and this is taking forever. I mean, I'm on the first shirt, you know. So here's what I do is I tie all of those clothes to various appendages and, I, and, and, and then I go into the kitchen and I, and I get out the coffee beans. And now I have to grind coffee, you know. So I'm, I'm, I start, I get a hammer and I'm dancing and now I'm with the hammer and I'm, and I'm trying to break coffee beans, you know, but now I got to heat the water. So I got to start a fire. Oh, goodness. Now I got to start a fire. So, so I go to the fireplace and I try to start a fire and, and, and I'm getting the wood together. And while I'm dancing, try not to re-soil the linens, you know. And, and so I'm doing all of this and then the smoothie. Oh, frozen vegetables. Okay, so I get the frozen vegetables and I'm stomping them on the ground, trying to beat them into some kind of a pulp that I can then put into a smoothie. You see, I'm doing all of these things, but I'm neglecting something. I'm neglecting power. See, there are two wires that come into my garage that supply an unlimited source of 240 volts at an 
almost unlimited wattage, whatever I would need to, to, to supply everything in my whole house, including the clothes dryer, the coffee grinder, the coffee maker, and the blender that's going to blend all of these things. And, and, and here's the, the beautiful thing is that when I have the power on, it's very easy to dry the clothes, grind the beans, brew the pot, and make the smoothie because all I have to do is make a decision to press a button, to turn on a switch. And if I just set things in order and then turn on the switch, the power is present for me to do what I need to do. And by the time Georgia gets home, I'm sitting there reading a book with my legs crossed, with my comfortable pajama clothes on, waiting for her to arrive, and also our guests. Very easy. Why? Because the power is there. And all I have to do is choose to use it. So too now when it comes to the Christian life. We're called to be an example of the believer in the way that we speak, what comes out of our mouth. In our lifestyle, our behavior, the way that we conduct ourselves, we're to be an example of Jesus. In our love towards the unlovely and towards our enemies, we're called to love them. That's impossible. I don't know how to do that. I, I, this is getting overwhelming. Now I gotta watch my behavior. Now I gotta love my enemies. I gotta, you know, uh, speak the right things and make sure nothing vile comes out of my mouth. And then in spirit, oh, Monday morning, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I love you, honey. You know, yes, I, I love my wife like Christ loves the church. And, and, and now it's beginning to really pile up, isn't it? Faith, my persuasion and my convictions. I'm solid in my faith and in my conversion. My, my moral cleanness and my purity. All of a sudden what's happening is I'm dancing around trying to live the Christian life. Drying clothes, grinding beans, the whole thing. But what I've done is I've neglected the gift. Because God has supplied us with the power that we need to live the Christian life. And what it comes down to for you and me is not our effort in trying to imitate Christ and to be like him, but rather it's simply to yield to what he has already done and then to allow him to supply us the power to do it supernaturally. And we become examples of Christ, not by imitation, but by impartation of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. You say, well, when was that gift given to me? Acts chapter 2, verse 37. The day of Pentecost comes, Peter preaches a sermon, and then he speaks these words. It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Listen, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, if that doesn't include you and me, and I don't know what it means. It's very clear that the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was provided for you and I, the power to be an example of Christ and to be an ensample of the believer to those that would look upon our lives that they might have a sample of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here tonight that you're tired from trying to live the Christian life? 
Or maybe you just gave up a long time ago and you just have dirty clothes dangling off the appendages of your body, dragging in the soil because you've tried so hard to be an example and you've failed. Here's what you've failed in. You haven't failed of the grace of God. You've just simply failed to turn the switch on. Because every promise of God and every command of God is empowered by the Spirit of God. And if we yield ourselves to simply do what he's called us to do, then what we discover is that the power is present to perform that which we're called unto when we yield to do it. And so he tells Timothy, and through this speaks to us, and he says, do not neglect the gift that is given to you. The Holy Spirit has been purchased and poured out, and it is available to all that the Lord our God shall call. So immerse yourself in the word of God, Neglect not the gift of the Spirit of God. And then number three in the next verse is hold nothing back. Verse 15, notice what he says. He says, meditate upon these things. The word meditate means to revolve in the mind. To keep bringing these things, these concepts, these truths over and over in your mind. Let it be your meditation. The thing that you think about. What do you think about? When you have free think time, I know what I tend to gravitate towards, you know, responsibilities and ideas and, you know, hobbies, perhaps things of that nature. But Paul is saying, make it your habit that what revolves in your mind when you have free thought time are the things of God. Meditate upon these things. Let that be what consumes your thought. And then he takes it a step further, not just your meditation, but he says, give thyself wholly to them. What he means by that is give thyself wholly to them. It means yield or give your entire existence to God. Give your entire existence to God. Hold nothing back. Why? He says that thy profiting or thy advancement or your progress in the things of God, your life, your flavor, if you would, what people get when they're around you that that might become evident to all, that everyone, everyone that's around you would say there's something about that person, they've got something that I want. I don't know what it is, I can't profile it, I can't classify it, I can't describe it or define it, but I want it. And he says that if you give yourself completely to the things of God and yield your life totally over to him, he will make your life these things, your advancement, your progress will be seen and viewed by all. I gave my life to Jesus Christ not because I'm a smart guy. I didn't hear the plea of an evangelist at the ripe old age of 19, which I was when I got saved, and look at my life and, you know, with all my uh, plans and all, all the ambitions and, you know, dreams and goals that I was actively pursuing and decide, you know, I need to give my life to Christ. That, that's not why I gave my life to Christ. I gave my life to Jesus Christ because I ruined my life. That's why I gave my life to Christ. No lie, I'm not a smart guy. I was so messed up at the age of 19 that, that my mental capacities were dwindling quickly. I, I did not have the ability to, to have a conversation with a human being. I, I used to say to people like my parents that I could trust, that, that my mind just spins. It just spins. I can't hang on to a thought. I can't hold a conversation because as soon as a thought begins to crystallize, it's gone. And, and I don't know what's going on. 
And I was going in a wrong direction, sliding down a slippery slope, losing control of the controls within my life. And in a moment of desperation, somehow I had just that much, you know, ability to know that I needed to call upon God. And so I did. I called upon Jesus. At a point in my life when I would say to God, God, whatever it means, if it means I have to shave my head and be a monk, I'll do it. If I have to wear a barbed wire suit and live on a mountaintop, I'll do it. Whatever it is, if you're real, I'll do it. And I gave my life to Christ on those terms. That was 14 years ago. And let me tell you, in 14 years, my life today is not perfect. You know, I'm just like you. I have a family. I have struggles. I, you know, there, there's problems. And we're, we're, we're going through this world together. None, none of us have it all together. But here's what I can tell you about my life today is that if, if I had the perfect education, and if I had the richest parents and the most practical resources at my disposal, if I had every natural advantage that a human being can have as far as intellect and as far as uh, you, you know, talent and business savvy and you know, all of those different things that people have that help them get through, if I had all of it, an unlimited potential to write my own ticket. I could not be where I am today. I could not. I would probably have a lot of money, maybe. I would be what the world would call successful when they looked at my life. But inwardly, I would be the same spinning mind, the same downward spiral, and much further along the path of destruction on that path. I wouldn't have the family life, if any family, that I have at all today. I wouldn't have any of the things that I have today. What God has done in my life in the past 14 years, I could never have done for myself. Never. I'm not telling you that so that you can look at me and say, wow, I'm so glad you've got it all together. You know, That's not why I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that because that's what Paul, by the Spirit of God, is telling you is that if you give yourself wholly to God and you hold nothing back, your progress and your advancement will become apparent to all. I'm not special. I'm telling you, I was an idiot. I was destroying my life. I was not the guy that got picked and everybody said, oh, I wish I could get what that... No, no, no. I was the guy on the outside. That's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to build it. He wants to put it together. He wants to bless it. He wants to breathe his life into it. He wants to bring stability and satisfaction into your family life, into your mind, into your work and what you put your hands to. He wants to show himself strong on your behalf. It's what he wants to do in your life. The way is give yourself completely to him. Holy your entire existence, yield it into his hands. I can tell you this. I don't know how he's done in my life what he's done in my life, but I wouldn't trade places with anybody for anything. He wants to do it for you. So yield completely to him. And then finally, number four, in verse 16, a warning that he gives him. He says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine." Take heed, first of all, unto yourself, Timothy, and also then to the doctrine, he says, continue in them. Notice that he brings the two things back together on the other side of the separation. Take heed to yourself, 
and to the doctrine, continue in them. That is, you and the doctrine. In other words, what he's saying is, do not, Timothy, and here's the warning for you and for me, do not let your life become detached from the teachings of God in the Bible. Do not let your life become, take heed to yourself and to the teaching and continue in them. Now, this happens, this detachment, it happens in one of two ways. The first way that it can happen is that a person who calls themselves a Christian can begin to have a Christian experience that's separate from the Word of God. In other words, they begin to pick and choose the attributes of God that they like. They begin to focus on the aspects of God's nature that they agree with, but they ignore other things and they distance themselves from the Bible. They believe the Bible, they profess the Bible, but they don't read it, they don't study it, they don't bring their life in line with it. They go to church, but they hear messages. They don't get into, what does God really want for my life? Who does he want me to be? How do I bring my life into, in, in line, alignment with his word, his ways? And so they, they begin to have this Christian experience that's just detached from the word of God. And, and they begin to subtly move in this direction of creating a Christian God in their own image, but they lack certain things like the fear of God, the severity of God, the sovereignty of God, the depths of God, the fact that he who created the outside And what people see is the same God that created the inside where I think and exist on a totally different level that God is there too. And so they detach from it. And there's a separate road and it leads to error. The other way that it happens, and this one's more subtle in it, and I think it's more pertinent for you and for me, is that a person can become a hearer of the word and because they hear it and know it, they automatically think that means they must be doing it. And so they're hearers of the word, but they're not doers of the word. Their intellect deceives their footsteps. And they know more than they actually practice. And so they've they've broken, they've detached from the word of God. They know it, they're, they're in it, they study it, but they're not right. They're the Pharisees that Jesus condemned. They knew the doctrines, but they didn't know God. And that can happen in a person's life if they become detached from the word of God. They appear to be Christian. They say everything Christian, but they don't do the things that God tells them to do. They don't give themselves, give attendance to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. They neglect the gift of God and they, they, they don't even try anymore to be an example, but they know what they're supposed to do and that's good enough. I know it. Knowing isn't doing. You become what, you become what I call a carob Christian. Anybody know what carob is? Carob. My wife. <laughs> Love my wife. I came home. I opened up the cupboard. A beautiful bar of chocolate. So I think. And I peel back the wrapper and I dig in it's sidewalk chalk. It's carob. Do you know what carob is? It's, it's chocolate that you buy at the health food store. It's not real chocolate. It's fake chocolate, you know. And, and, and what happens is that people have all the appearances of Christian. They deceive everyone. Wow, look at that person. They're gold wrapped. They even have a gold wrapped binding Bible. But yet inwardly what they are is far from Christian because they're hearers, but they're not doers of the word. And so here's the warning that Paul is closing with as it pertains to you and I being an example of the believer. Here it is. 
is that don't let your life become detached from the doctrine, from the word of God. Keep in step. Be careful that what you read, what you study, what you hear, you also apply and ask the Holy Spirit of God to make a part of your life. And that's an absolutely essential and vital part of being an accurate and true reflection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives to Timothy these four practical instructions of how him and how you and I can become a sample of the beauty of the life of Jesus Christ. That we would immerse ourselves in the word of God. That we would neglect not the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us to make these things alive and real within our lives. That we would give ourselves completely to the things of God, holding nothing back. And that we wouldn't become detached from the doctrine. And if you do those things, your life will become a sample, an example of Jesus Christ. And it will put silence to your critics. But ultimately, not silence, it will bring conversion and salvation. Because when they look at your life, when they're in your presence, they're going to be in the presence of Christ. And they're going to see something that they don't have that they want. And it will bring them to a place of salvation. So Paul gives us this practical instruction on being an example of the believer. The musicians can come as we close. There's a lot of things that we heard tonight, and I don't know what the Spirit of God may have spoke to you as you were hearing these things tonight. I know that there was a lot of things that he spoke to me. I felt the Holy Spirit challenge my heart about the place and priority I give attendance to just reading the Word of God. And also to where, perhaps in my life, I've just compromised away the difficult parts of the Christian life because I lack the power in myself to produce them. I felt the Spirit speak to me and bring me to an understanding of a greater dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. And maybe the Lord spoke that to your heart tonight as you heard this, that the Lord said, you need to be filled again with my Holy Spirit. You need to get back into the Word of God. There's an appointment. There's attendance that's going to be taken tomorrow morning. There's a time set aside where you can just get into the Word and let the Word of God start your day, fellowshipping with Jesus and then bringing it in line with your life. Maybe there's an area of your life that you're holding back from God. You're not allowing Him access to. You'll give Him this and you'll surrender here, but... God, I I still have to drive the ship when it comes to this, that, or the other thing because I don't know if you're really going to come through. Or perhaps you, in your heart, you know that as you hear these things that you're a hearer of the word, but you're not a doer of it. Or you've distanced yourself from the Bible in such a way that you've kind of made your own God. You've kind of made a buffet God where you've taken what you like, but you've disregarded some of the other. I'm going to give you a chance to respond tonight. As the musicians begin to sing, just if you, if you feel like the Lord is speaking to your heart and that you just need a fresh filling with the Holy Spirit of God, I just ask you to come to the front of the church tonight. And the pastors and the elders that are here, we're going to come behind and we're just going to pray for you. We're going to pray that God would fill you, that he would renew you, that he would refresh you, that he would lift you up. And here's why. Here's why it's important. Because we're at a time and a place in our 
nation's history where we're about to go down a tube really fast. The people of this country have shaken their fist at God and offended God in every possible way that a nation can offend God. And you and I that are here right now on this planet, we are the Joshua's and the Caleb's. See, Joshua and Caleb, they were faithful to God when the rest of the nation said no to God. And the judgment of God came upon the nation that refused God, and Joshua and Caleb went into it with them. And and I don't know when the Lord's coming back or how all of that's going to play into this, but I do know that our nation is on the fast track to decline and demise. And you and I have an opportunity in this day right now, to be an example of Jesus Christ and to shine brighter in an ever-darkening world. But we can't do it on our own. We need the power of God's Holy Spirit. We need to be people that are in the Word, in tune with what He's doing, what He's saying, what He's speaking. Ready to give an answer to every man for the hope that lies within us. Perhaps tonight you just need to be refilled. I encourage you as the music begins to play, come to the front of the church. Let us pray for you. And we'll ask God to fill us again with his spirit, to equip us and empower us to be what he's calling us to be in this time. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.